Hello, and welcome to my office. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and this is Beyond the Prescription, the show where I talk with my guests like I do my patients, pulling the curtain back on what it means to be healthy, redefining health as more than the absence of disease. As a primary care doctor for over 20 years, I've realized that patients are much more than their cholesterol and their weight, that we are the integrated sum of complex parts. Our stories live in our bodies. I'm here to help people tell their story and for you to imagine and potentially get healthier from the inside out. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lucymcbride.com newsletter and to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Today's guest is an award-winning journalist who's using her weekly podcast, No One Is Coming To Save Us, to amplify women's voices in a post-Roe world. Gloria Riviera is a dear friend from college. She's spent over 20 years as an ABC News correspondent, traveling around the world and the country, reporting on hard-hitting issues like terrorism, human rights abuse, underage sex trafficking, and war. Gloria, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm thrilled to have the chance to talk to you. The pleasure is all mine. Listen, it's really wonderful to be here. You have covered some really hard topics in your work as a journalist. You've traveled all over the world talking about complicated, tender, vulnerable moments in people's lives and cultural flashpoints. You also have personal experience dealing with discomfort. When you and I talked earlier this week, I was reminded of why you are so uniquely positioned as a human being to talk about the subjects you're discussing, from abortion rights to child sex trafficking. You have had a personal experience with extreme vulnerability, medically, emotionally, And so I can't help but think that that experience you had that we'll talk about next equips you to discuss these tender issues in a very nuanced way. Let's go back, Gloria, if you could, to 2019 when you were walking around healthy, mothering three children, married to your cute husband, Jim Shuto, not knowing what was about to happen to your brain. I remember that day so well, and I love the way that you connect the ability to witness and articulate and translate these tender, nuanced moments to what I've experienced. And I think that I've experienced it professionally, but nothing was more acute than being diagnosed with brain cancer when I was, oh goodness, I can't remember, late 40s. It was 2019, and I actually went to, it was a Sunday My husband was traveling. He was on a plane back from London, and I went to a hot yoga class, which is one of my passions and one of my very calming practices that I do. It's sort of like a a moving meditation. And I was in yoga class, happy as can be. My kids were at home. My husband was getting home that evening, and I had two back-to-back grand mal seizures. And I was very lucky in that moment because a friend, a yoga friend practicing next to me happened to be studying to become an ER nurse, Jess Belford. 
she was in the room. And when they called 911, the person who answered in my day, we would have called it a pager. I'm sure it's not a pager anymore, but answered the call was also a yoga practitioner at that same studio. After everything happened, I received a message on Facebook from someone I did not know also in the class reaching out just to tell me, I want you to know you were surrounded with love when that happened. So I remember nothing. I woke up, you know, my DC village was there. Jim got in that night and boom, we were off to the races. You know, they knew it was a brain tumor. They did not know initially that it was cancerous, but pretty quickly we learned that it was. And it was sitting on my left frontal lobe, which, as you know, is where your speech and personality function is. That was the first time I thought, you know, I have friends who've had brain tumors, not very many, but no one with something, I mean, a reporter, uh, you know, a, a human, <laughs> you don't want anything compromising your speech and personality. But that's the situation we were facing. Let me just clarify for listeners a seizure does not always mean someone has a brain tumor. A seizure can be from lots of different things, from dehydration to epilepsy. But it sounds like, Gloria, after this moment in the yoga class, you were taken to the hospital. The automatic test one gets with a new seizure is a CAT scan and then brain MRI to determine if there's any underlying anatomic abnormality. And it sounds like in your case, there was a mass. Can you tell me what it was like in that moment when you learned that there was something in your brain that wasn't supposed to be there? Yeah, I can. And I, I love that phrasing, anatomic abnormality. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like the biggest euphemism. It's the biggest <laughs> yeah. euphemism in the world. No, I like it. Listen, like what I remember from waking up in the hospital, I had two good friends there and I was pretty drugged up. But the first thing I did was to sort of motion for their hand. My husband was not yet there. And I put their hand, you know, right on my heart. And that's the gesture I made. And I think that gesture is about expressing, I don't want to be alone in this moment, and I trust you to be with me. It feels like when I think about it, slow motion, okay, brain tumor. And I remember there was this not very helpful nurse in the hospital, and he said something like, I had just covered former Senator John McCain, his brain tumor. I just covered that story, which eventually killed him in pretty short order, very sadly. And this nurse said to me, well, listen, it doesn't look like what John McCain had. You know, I'm like, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. So I'm, I'm not going to die within a year. Thank you so much. You know, I think because I had dealt with situations that forced me to be vulnerable, oftentimes kicking and screaming from childhood, and even now remembering those situations, which I'm happy to talk about. Finding out that I had brain cancer, finding out that they were going to do a surgery that was very tricky, finding out what brain tumors look like, which you can kind of, it was explained to me like an octopus. I have many friends who are now cancer-free. They've had horrific cancers. They're now cancer-free. I will never be cancer-free. You just can't get out all the tentacles. They did an amazing job in my surgery, but it was what it was. I remember when they told me when we were figuring out treatment, if I chose one course of treatment, the outset, you know, the sort of this is how long people usually make it was 10 years. And my daughter was four at the time. And immediately I thought, oh, she'll be a freshman in high school. What a terrible time to lose a mom. And that moment was crystallized for me. I think so that was like the mobilizing moment where I thought, well, I'm just going to do whatever I can not to die, which in the big picture didn't turn out to be so much. 
And at the same time I was going through this, a very dear childhood friend of mine was in stage four colon cancer and sadly passed away two months after I had my seizure. A lot was happening. And I was one of those people that just felt, let's just put one foot in front of the other. And I have to say, my husband, who is incredible in a crisis, he delivered one of our children unexpectedly at home. Oh, my God. Just a rock star. Give that man (laughs) a contract. My husband and my friends, they were on top of it. So I really felt like I kind of just did what I was told and made a few big decisions, you know, chemo, radiation, not chemo, not radiation. What was my treatment going to be? And I remember, Gloria because I've known you for a long time, looking at your story unfold on Facebook, you would put pictures of your scar and your shaved head. And, you know, somehow you were able to share that. And I think people share these things for various reasons, but it struck me the way you talked about it, that you were very matter of fact. It wasn't like you were looking for sympathy and like, oh, poor me, you aren't playing this sort of victim role. In fact, if anything, you were very, very seemingly confident, although I know behind the scenes it wasn't always like that. But it struck me as your way of garnering support and also sort of normalizing this process of uncertainty, which I think was really helpful to people watching it, particularly for me as a physician. I mean, We cannot control what we cannot control. You had no way to prevent this tumor. You had no control over the prognosis. And somehow you were able to share this putting one foot in front of the other story with others. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think it's part of my personality is just it is what it is. I also think having a friend who had gone through a pretty horrific colon cancer diagnosis that would eventually take her life. She did that very, very privately. It was hard to get in touch with her during those three years. When I was diagnosed with cancer, then all of a sudden we had this, what I actually told her mother was this great text exchange. And her mother very poignantly said, well, I don't know if I'd call it great, which I completely understood in that moment. But I don't hide things. I'm really proud that I'm living with cancer. I feel like the doctor said, listen, a lot of things could kill you before the cancer kills you. At that point, you're like, that is always the case. That's the case since the day we're born. Of course. And the doctors also told me this tumor has probably been growing since childhood. That moment for me was a moment of crystallizing. We really don't know everything that's going on in our bodies. So what can we control? Where can we do the work? And that's really in your mind and your heart in your mental state, in your emotional state, in your physical state. And even then, you know, surprises come and that's the way it is. So yeah, it's funny because now, you know, I do regular MRIs and my mom, bless her heart, she just turned 80. She's like, you didn't tell me you had an MRI this week. And I'm like, mom, you know, it's not a big deal. But I will say walking into the Johns Hopkins radiology you know, that waiting room where people are there to have MRIs for any number of issues. I am so grateful for those appointments because it is the most humbling two hours of my life. And I think we just need to be reminded that we're all living in a fragile state. It's how you manifest the way you show up within that fragility every day. Amen. I think you're absolutely right. You know, I deliver a fair amount of bad news in my work People handle it in a variety of ways. 
some people retreat inward. They want to be very private. They want to tell only their close family members. Some people want to manifest it externally. I don't think there's any sort of right or wrong way to handle an extremely vulnerable situation. But there's something about the way you had this perspective kind of from day one that suggests you had had some practice dealing with, as you just said, fragility, because people aren't born with perspective. Usually people have some experience with adversity, struggle, falling flat on their face that then opens their eyes to their unique vulnerabilities, but also their unique capabilities. What allowed you, Gloria, to be so perspective having in this fragile moment? I love that way you just put that, that vulnerability, like revealing vulnerabilities or stepping into your vulnerability or being forced into your vulnerability leads to unveiling your capabilities. Brain cancer sucks. It's horrible. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. That being said, like I'm fine with living with brain cancer. I really am fine. But I think when I look back to my life, I mean, there's a laundry list. And I mean, I don't know. It depends. As you said, people are not born with perspective. I grew up, my parents divorced when I was 10. It was really ugly. I was bulimic in high school. That's the first time that I sought therapy for myself, which was really incredible. I was married briefly for nine months, lots of therapy then. I mean, I always had these things happen to me that moved me towards seeking help for my own mental state. And I think just the way people are not born with perspective, in my experience, and I see this happening with adults every day, I'm almost 50, we're also not born really seeing the tools that we have at our disposal to deal with feelings of discomfort. I somehow got to my brain cancer diagnosis very comfortable with discomfort. Not only from therapy do I have the tools, but I think I've changed as a person. I think those around me whom I love very much have also changed someone. I'm talking about the people that I have like deep, close relationships, like my husband. I've seen him do incredible work and grow immeasurably emotionally. And that changes how he's able to show up for me. I mean, I was uh, talking to a group of teachers yesterday and they were teachers who deal with kids who've dealt with a lot of trauma in low income areas in Chicago. We just got off on this tangent and all of a sudden I heard myself say, yeah, you know, the cops came to my house on more than one occasion because of domestic disputes when I was young. I remember that. That was traumatizing. I also saw my mother really show up. It was not my father. It was someone she was dating at the time. I had modeling in front of me that was very resilient. So overall, if you think of it as sort of this quilt, I had all these patches that kind of pushed me towards a pretty strong grounding when things get really scary. Resilience was modeled to you at a young age. What does resilience mean to you? What does that actually mean? Because it sounds like there was domestic disputes. There was, I mean, enough that a police officer had to come to the house. What does that actually mean? I think resilience means looking something in the eye that happens that's incredibly uncomfortable. So it's the ability to take it in, to accept that it's happening, and open up just a little bit of space to think about how am I going to respond in this moment. I can fly off the handle. I can take a very extreme action. I could meet violence in any way, shape, or form with violence, or I could do a whole host of things. So it's sort of like an armor. I think of resilience as an armor, but a very healthy armor. That's how I 
came to see it. I think also the effects of witnessing true resilience take time, right? In that moment on the night when the cops came, I saw my mother behave in a certain way, but it was, you know, months, years later that I saw the effects of taking an action that wasn't debilitating on that night. So when the nurse came in and said, it's cancer, but don't worry, it's not the kind of cancer that John McCain had. And I was like, okay, that is like the least helpful comment you could possibly make right now. I want to break that down a minute because what that exemplifies, that nurse saying to you, it's not what John McCain had, is his attempt to quiet discomfort. Yes, yes. But it's it's almost his attempt to quiet his own discomfort as much as it is yours. Because if it was really trying to quiet your discomfort, he might have asked you how you were feeling and then responded to it. But he made right. an assumption that... You just needed to know it wasn't what John McCain had. Being uncomfortable in that moment, whether you're delivering bad news or you're receiving bad news, is uncomfortable. Yeah, severely uncomfortable. Severely uncomfortable. Yet that is the stuff of life. Yeah. What you said about your childhood, about having that or learning to have that space between the moment of discomfort and then how you react to it is really how we help get through discomfort, right? It's like the nurse in that moment was trying to quickly put a bow on something that was uncomfortable when the important thing is to acknowledge there's no way to make that moment okay. There's no comparison to another person. There's no set of words you can say. In fact, I wonder what he could have said to you that would have been better. I mean, what if he had said, I'm so sorry you have to deal with this? Would that have felt patronizing? I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about what he could have said. Yeah, like you know, what? what? It's like, I think that in those moments, in any moment where, I mean, as you said, you deliver a lot of bad news, it's pretty fundamental. I think most people want to felt seen, and that takes a certain kind of intuition in the dynamic between doctor and patient, but they want to felt seen. They want to feel not alone. And they want to feel like they won't be alone going forward. So it really made me think of like bedside manner and how important that is. And it really, you know, hit home very, very quickly. I also think it's very, for me personally, tied to my 14-year-old self who became bulimic in high school, really dealt with that for over 10 years. And what that's about, for me, my personal experience with bulimia, was being unable to be in discomfort. Bulimics often will eat to numb the feeling, like literally like shove food in to get rid of the uncomfortable feeling and then get rid of it. It's interesting because I think even now, listen, like I'm 48. I mean, I'm struggling to think of someone I know who speaks openly about her bulimia or his bulimia. Like I really, I know it happens. I know it happens a lot. I'm very comfortable talking about it because I feel like it was one of the biggest triumphs in my life, like working through what is happening here, why am I doing this to myself, why can't I stop? You know, at 14, 15, I wasn't going to become an alcoholic or a drug addict, but it is kind of closely tied to addiction, right? Of course, it is. As you just said, you know, people think that disordered eating is always about vanity or fitting into jeans or something. And, you know, sometimes that's part of it. But as you just said, it's an addiction. It's a very primitive way of trying to numb uncomfortable feelings. Right. We right. have to reckon with food because we have to eat to survive. Adolescence is fraught regardless of your 
lived experience. And there's no surprise that the relationship with food is particularly complicated. And then in adolescence, if you're dealing with discomfort, whether it's a parent getting divorced or, you know, some medical stressor or socioeconomic issue, binging and purging becomes a convenient way to dissociate from our bodies. Right. And right. Dissociate right. from so our dissociate minds. from the feeling, right? And so like you feel after you purge, you feel quote unquote better. It's not really better. You haven't dealt with the emotion that was making you feel uncomfortable. So in high school, it's like, oh, that boy doesn't like me or I don't feel good about this friendship, whatever it is. It took a long time for me to find a therapist who was able to help me really open up the door and be okay in that discomfort. And that's not unlike, okay, you have brain cancer. Okay, I need to take a moment and open up a door within myself to feel the feelings. And what are the feelings? Okay, I'm terrified. I'm absolutely full of fear that I won't be here for my kids. You know, there's a lot that can go in that moment. It's even just, wow, I'm really scared. Like even just saying that to myself or, wow, I really don't like this feeling starts to sort of wedge open more space internally to deal with the emotions, which I think is so important. And I think also tied to my work now because I have been able in moments of war to see, I can see when a person is overwhelmed with a situation and how they are responding to that. And there's a very beautiful journalistic dance that one does if they're lucky to find the right moment to ask the right question. And often the right question is, tell me what happened. How are you feeling? It's often that simple, Gloria. It's the same thing in medicine. I don't come in right away to a new patient-doctor relationship asking patients about their emotional and mental health vulnerabilities. But if I see someone struggling with a relationship with food or a relationship with alcohol or a relationship with a spouse, there's a moment after you establish a rapport and there's trust where you recognize someone is struggling with complicated feelings. They're channeling those feelings into a less-than-ideal behavior. As you just said, feeling the feelings is often the birthplace of insight, awareness, and then agency. Bulimia or addiction to drugs or addiction to violence it usually stems from feeling vulnerable and feeling not seen or not heard or shoving down emotions that aren't being processed appropriately. And when you ask that question, how are you feeling? Or as I say to my patients a lot, are you okay? That allows us to communicate to ourselves and to other people how we're actually feeling, which then opens the door to, first of all, giving ourselves permission to be human and then more appropriately dealing with feelings. Because, you know, I think it's a relief in a way to hear you right now. And I'm sure to listeners hearing you say that you were afraid, you were scared, you were vulnerable, because it would be shocking to just be diagnosed with brain cancer and then press on and put it on Facebook and be like, OK, this is all right. It's important, I think, to know, as you and I both do, that there's a lot of fear and terror that came along with it. It's just you didn't capitulate to those feelings, but you also didn't ignore them. I absolutely felt fear. And I remember that moment looking at what they put on your head when they perform radiation on your brain. I mean, holy moly, picture like a Freddy the 13th hockey mask with like tons of tiny little openings. It's like a wire mask and you have to lay still and they have to like direct the lasers towards the tumor. It's really scary when you see that. It's like, I don't know if I want to do that. And you can't be out. 
I will say like what's interesting to me is when I reflect on that experience and yes, I was absolutely terrified and yes, I put on Facebook. I mean, it, there's so many moments like they give you these huge massive pants that are a size like bazillion extra large and I'm just like, you know, to go in to have your MRI on your brain. When I reflect on what I went through initially after my diagnosis, what I really think about is how those around me reacted. I wasn't going through it alone. For me, I don't know how anyone does it alone. I mean, I really don't. I feel like my lack of fear or my ostensible lack of fear was reinforced by the way those around me behaved. I laugh. I don't have my doctor's number in my phone. I just don't. My husband has my doctor's number. If there's any cancer question I have, he's right there next to me like, oh, let me call Dr. Kleinberg. You know, I just had a pap smear. I have abnormal cells. I have to go have something done. He's like, well, let me call Dr. Kleinberg. I'm like, Dr. Kleinberg deals with like dying cancer patients. Like, I don't think we need to call Dr. Kleinberg for this. <laughs> you know? I guess what I'm saying is that I really think about the fact that people do not want to feel alone, even if they can't say it. And I definitely did not want to feel alone and never did. I think what you're saying too, Gloria, is that the village matters. And that you want to pick your friends wisely. And I think one of the things we do as we get older, I'm a little older than you, is we prune our friendships. The friends who are there for you in the darkest hours are gold. Oh, yeah, totally gold. And also, I think the older that I get, my radar is pretty good at picking up people who, I don't know, they'll just say something. It may be someone I've just met, but they'll say something or they'll extend an act of kindness or they are inclusive or whatever it is. Like my radar is pretty good at thinking, you know what? I think I want to be friends with you. I oh, think totally. I, I like I, I, I'm the same way. You know, it's funny when you get older, you think, oh gosh, I'll never have friends like I do right now. And then you meet someone who, just as you said, to me, it's about kindness, it's openness, it's shared vulnerability. You know, someone who looks and acts and talks like they've got it all figured out. I'm like, mm, not interested. No. It's just, <laughs> I'm not, inter- I'm really not interested because, you know, the people who just post hashtag living my best life on Instagram <laughs> and you're like, I mean, what? great. I'm, I'm happy for you. Like I'm I able know. to be happy for other people. And that's another sign of a good friend, right? Is someone who's happy yeah. for your joys, someone who doesn't mm-hmm. kill your moments of glory and pleasure and fun. But let's be honest. I mean, the birthplace of friendships and relationships that are meaningful is that shared vulnerability. I also really value irreverence. Oh, God. I really value someone who's like any irreverent comment. I'm like, oh, bring it. I want to talk to you a little bit more. Yeah, I'm like, I love it. And it's the lack of irreverence. And that's kind of, I think, like, To me, if you're posting, I don't know, these very ostentatious displays of how delighted you are with your own life, that to me is a little bit incongruous with true, joyful irreverence. I agree. The irreverence, the humor, I mean, humor and irreverence, we got to hang out more often, my friend, Um, (laughs) because I have a lot I'm irreverent about. And especially, I mean, this is a little bit tangential to what we're talking about, but especially in the world we live in where there's such a premium put on appearance and Mm -hmm. imagery on social media. And we live in this world where it's hard to speak out against the grain of the popular narrative and sometimes hard to question kind of the pervasive POV. I totally love people who are like, you know what, wait a minute, where there's curiosity, there's critical thinking, and there's 
badass humor because, I mean, you really can't get through life without humor to me. I mean, I don't know how you do. You have a daughter who's a junior in high school. Like, she's barreling towards 18, which is a major milestone. My daughter just turned seven. Yeah. So, like, that's basically 10 years in age difference between our daughters. So, Dr. McBride, I will be coming to you as both Lucy and Dr. McBride. I mean, come to, <laughs> to me. say, how do I get through this? One thing I will say about that, and again, we're tangentializing if that's a verb. This segues into what you're doing professionally, Gloria, yeah. but parenting is an exercise in humility. It is an exercise in getting your ass handed to you on a platter every single day. As a recovering perfectionist, parenting has been the best antidote because I I realized (laughs) I don't have control over the universe. I learned that from an early age. I learned it in college too with a relationship with food that was really complicated and unhealthy. But then parenting has taught me in a beautiful, painful, joyful, messy, complicated way that I need to sit back and listen and learn because my kids teach me things every day. Yeah. I could go on. My kids are flawed. They are imperfect. There are cereal bowls under their beds from like (laughs) 2019. But I learn from them. Opening myself up to the lessons that my kids teach me about how different they are from me and how much learning I have to do is just awesome. It makes me think of two things. And generally, the theme has been, okay, let's talk about how we are in discomfort. And professionally, I thought I was solely qualified to do only what I did, which was to do a report for a minute and 30 seconds for the evening news or the morning news every day. I since made a huge transition. And the company that I work for, Lemonada, their motto is to make life suck less by talking about the really hard things. So their first podcast was about the two founders, Stephanie Whittles-Wax and Jessica Cordova-Kramer. They both lost their brothers to heroin overdoses at age 30. I listened to that episode. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was incredibly powerful. Incredible. So they're talking about a very tricky topic. And I'm telling you, like, I laughed, I cried, like, I learned so much you know, my show is about the childcare crisis, a horrific talk about collective discomfort and just this primal scream that parents were feeling during the pandemic with their kids. That's the path that we go down with that. And to hear you talk about parenting, like there are going to be a lot of uncomfortable moments. There already are. There have been. My oldest son is about to be 14. You know, I'm just bracing myself. But to be okay with that, Mm -hmm. to be okay with like, wow, this is really uncomfortable. This is a very uncomfortable moment. (laughs) Acknowledge it's uncomfortable, laugh about it, and then don't try to sanitize, fix, control. That is no easy task for me. The things that I've learned about myself and about my kids have been when I've kind of let things play out and let things organically happen. And, you know, it's cliche to say this, but I'll say it anyway, is like, is let them fail. Yeah, for sure. Not in a like, let them run around juggling knives when they're five. I'm just saying, let them struggle and figure it out. You have this podcast that is helping us understand the childcare crisis in this country. The pandemic really shined a light on this childcare crisis because yeah. schools were closed, kids were running around structureless, sometimes parentless. Talk to me about your show. Talk to me about how you're helping parents and caregivers manage this crisis. And then talk to me about the chapter you've now entered talking about a post-Roe world. Yeah. 
I long for the days when I was very comfortable talking about one little niche crisis. Now we have a whole host of crises to choose from. Our show started with the intent to look at the childcare crisis, explain it, ask the question, how do we get into this mess? The U.S. is ranked at the bottom of the world in terms of what we do for people when they become parents. We do nothing. It's like, oh, you're going to have a baby. See you in kindergarten. Like, see you in public school starts. Our country has done childcare before during World War II when women had to go back to work to support the war effort. There were pop-up childcare centers because someone somewhere thought, oh, if every woman is going back to work, who's going to take care of their children? Eleanor Roosevelt had an opinion column at the time. She really advocated to keep those childcare centers of the 40s. They all closed because the men were coming back from war and needed to go back to work. And so the women could go back into the home. So there's a lot that we could discuss when we get together for a walk or for coffee or for a drink about the way we perceive women. And then we have perceived women, also women of color. You know, we think about slavery and the fact that we took children from their parents and sold them. I mean, those are all fundamental foundational perspectives that went into why we ended up with this threadbare childcare system. We look at that. It was super fun. If you haven't listened to it, Kristen Bell from The Good Place and who also played, you know, the princess. She oh, was the ice person. Elsa. Yes. Yes. Sorry, Kristen, you played Elsa. Um, she <laughs> does a wonderful job in the first episode, makes it super fun, super informative. So we got to the end of the first season and it was like, okay, childcare sucks in this country. It absolutely sucks. And we ended on a hopeful note, which is in Oregon, a movement was successful in obtaining universal pre-K for three and four-year-olds. So we end on this hopeful note. How did they do that? The show closed. It did really surprisingly well, I think in part because we released at this time when parents, particularly mothers, were done. They'd had it. And let me tell you, the childcare crisis is far worse than you and I know it was. I've spoken to teachers who are giving Zoom lessons and seeing abuse happen in the background, like on the one laptop in the house. As bad as we think it was, it was far worse. Lemonada Media came to me along with Neighborhood Villages. Those two organizations helped launch this podcast and said, I think this should be a weekly. I was terrified. I was like, what do I have to say about childcare on a weekly basis? As it turns out, a lot. And I really approach it like, what do I have to learn every week? I'm not a policy wonk. I'm not seeped in the childcare industry. But I will say, like, what we've learned is that people are burnt out. You know this better than anyone, mothers in particular. And there are repercussions from the pandemic that will affect how we parent, how our kids show up. While in most other industries, the word on the street is, oh, we're back to pre-pandemic levels. In childcare, and obviously, you can tell by the way I'm speaking, I could talk about this all day, but I'll be very brief. In childcare, we pay poverty level wages. We'll educate you. You can go to school and have lots of letters behind your name, but if you enter the industry, you're going to most likely, if you're lucky, we're talking about 17, 18, places that pay 20 an hour are rare. So we pay poverty level wages. I'm sure many of your listeners, like the wait list, like can you find somewhere close to you? It's not accessible and it's not affordable for parents. It's more than your mortgage. So it's a social safety net that really encompasses a lot. And we have lots of data on how wonderful a child's brain is in those early years and all sorts of like, you name it, higher graduation rates from high school, more people in the work community. And oh, guess what? 
if we take care of your child, if we provide that social safety net, oh, you can go to work and oh, you can be a taxpayer. So it's like win-win and it, it drives me crazy. And at this moment in our country's history, the fact that our legislation has completely foundered. I'm an optimist. I can't help but be an optimist, but it's hard right now for the child care and early education industry. I just gave you a lot. <laughs> no, 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 no. And then, and like, then it's, like, it's like, you. you have to go because you have a child you have to yes. tend to. But, you know, particularly in the post-Roe world where we can expect to see many, many more children on the planet. Children. When we made the pivot, when Roe versus Wade was overturned, Lemonada Neighborhood Villages came to me and said, how can we not cover this? Right. How can we not cover this? There will be more children born into a system that already does a horrific job of taking care of them. There will just be more children. That is what is going to happen. There will be more children born to black and brown mothers who are in oftentimes a very compromised state along with white mothers, any mother. We're going to be putting more children into a society that has women in particular and men, but women in particular who are compromised in their ability to care for them. So what do we do? Yes. And what do we do? What do we do? And it makes me feel, Lucy, like that moment when they're like, so the tumors on your left frontal lobe on your speech and personality function. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to deal with that. I'm talking about both now. I don't want to think about it. But you have to. You have to put one foot in front of the other. And I, you know, from all those years and my experience being vulnerable, being comfortable, being uncomfortable, that's what I'm doing every day for this show. I am like, okay, I'm here. I'm showing up. This sucks. Especially it sucks. We're both in Washington, D.C. There are hundreds of millions of dollars on the table and they're not going to childcare and they're not going to paid family leave. It just drives me crazy and I can't let it go. So I feel like as much as I loved covering important issues throughout my career, natural disasters, war, human trafficking, I finally found the bone that I can't let go of. I cannot let go. I'm like, I need to understand why this country is making these decisions when it doesn't have to. And I've talked to people who have had their taxes raised and they've rolled their eyes. These are people in Oregon who now have many more thousands of dollars added to their tax bill because one county in Oregon is providing universal pre-K for three-year-olds. And I just, I'm like, how much is enough for you? Like, what are we going to do? How are we going to fix this? So I feel like this is my life's work. I'll be here if you need you me. You have landed <laughs> in the right space because your passion shows. And at a very minimum, you're doing a lot more than just this. But at a minimum, when people listen to your podcast, they feel heard and they feel seen. I hope so. If I can give that gift to anyone, then I'm going to stay on this path. Please do. And Gloria, thank you so much for sharing your story, your humor, and you're just incredible person. So thanks, Gloria. I can't wait to hear how this episode turns out. Oh my gosh. Well, Lucy, let me tell you, it has been an absolute pleasure. I've watched you yourself and your professional career morph into a different kind of doctor, into a different kind of reliable, resourceful friend to so many. I'm so proud of you and this step that you've taken, and I'm so glad to be a part of it. Mwah. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you like this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, 
please drop us a line at info at lucymcbride.com. The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals. That should be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at Podville Media in Washington, D.C.